This is an ABC podcast. So, Norman, what's your star sign, baby? Oh, God. Just for the audience's sake, um, our producer, Shelby, in a career-ending question, asked us what our star signs were. So, Tegan, I am Aries, or Aries. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. What are you, Tegan? Well, no, before we move on so swiftly from that, if you're Aries, that must mean that you have either just had or are just about to have a birthday, Norman. Well, some might say that, but that's for them to judge. Well, I know the truth, and I'm a Gemini, so it's still a little while before mine. Yeah, and very good matches, Aries and Gemini, aren't they? I have no idea, actually, what I'm talking about, but, you know. I'm sure our audience would agree. That's right. This could be the end of the scientific credibility of... Coronacast, a show all about the coronavirus and sometimes other viruses as well. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor coming to you from Jagera and Turable Land. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan coming to you from Gadigal Country. It's March the 29th, 2023. And yes, we usually do talk about coronavirus on this podcast, uh, hence the name. But I want to zoom out a bit today, Norman, and just talk about pandemics and epidemics in general, because we do live in an incredible time of science and research. We're so much better than we have been in basically every generation up until now when it comes to protecting people and protecting our health. But there is more that we could be doing. And a group of experts much more well-informed than me have been writing about that in The Lancet this week about, okay, we're coming out of a pandemic, hopefully, let's do better at protecting against future ones, especially for people in countries that are less wealthy than Australia. Yes, and this is a piece in The Lancet. Um, There are several authors on it, but the two authors that anchor this paper are Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, former president of Liberia, and Helen Clark, former prime minister of New Zealand. And they were the co-chairs, you might remember, Tegan, of a WHO commission of investigation or review into the pandemic response, which they did uh, independently, and it was pretty brutal and forthright in terms of what the, the conclusions they came to. And this is a paper that's been put forward about what needs to happen now moving forward. And what are sort of the main findings? Because the thing that always comes up in these sorts of conversations is this need for a global response when actually we're not, we we tend to respond okay at quite a local level depending on where we are, but having a really cohesive global response is something that is quite elusive. Well, it has been in this pandemic. Uh, It's been fractured. It's been every nation for themselves, um, partly because of the way the world was governed when this broke out. A lot of authoritarian men in power in various countries in the world, and it was go it alone. And if you didn't go it alone, you you were swimming in a very unfortunate ocean, as many low- to middle-income countries uh, where. So this is about the infrastructure, if you like, about how we should be prepared for pandemics moving forward. And there are general principles here. One is that the technologies that are going to detect and prevent and treat pandemic organisms and pandemics moving forward should not be commodities in the private market. There should be a common goods approach that essentially if you develop something to actually detect or manage an epidemic, a pandemic, that should be available to everybody and not for profit by a private entity. Uh, It assumes that every population, every person in the world has the right to health, which is assumed in most countries of the world, except countries like particularly the United States. And a key principle here is that low to middle income countries should not depend on charity. 
I mean, this is it might sound counterintuitive for them to say that, but essentially, when you depend on charity, there's just a random nature to it. Well, it and doesn't sound counterintuitive. It's it sounds as if it should be self-evident. The fact that it has to be said at all kind of indicates that there's a real problem with how we do do this at the moment. Yes, because every charity has its own aims and is not universal and not available to everybody. So that it should not it should not depend on charity that there should be money loaded into the, the system, pre-negotiated, to allow for the future control of pandemics and detection. And in fact, the World Bank has uh, developed something called the Pandemic Fund. As of this week, Sunday of this week that we're talking, March 26th, it's got $527 million in it. Not very much when you think of how much the COVID pandemic costs. But the aim here is to give running room for low- to middle-income countries in particular to actually invest in, con- in detection and control and in technologies that are going to be widely available. Another thing that happened last uh, with the COVID pandemic was that the rich and powerful countries took over and low- to middle-income countries weren't at the decision-making table and the World Health Organization was relatively weak in the process. So they're talking about strengthening the World Health Organization, which really in many ways exists to give voice to the health needs of low to middle income countries and to give them a seat at the table in terms of decision making. It talks well, about... Pres- presumably, if we are trying to have a fund that then people can access or countries can access if there's a pandemic, you really do need a central health body to define a pandemic so that then those funds can be released. That's right. Now, another problem with the COVID-19 pandemic has been that researchers have not necessarily been free to operate, particularly in China, but in some other countries as well. So they're talking about the freedom of research, freedom to cross borders, and actually researchers to do what they need to do to identify and control the pandemic at the earliest possible means. So it, it sets out, in brief, a set of principles by which the world should operate. And one would hope that nation, the nations of the world are actually able to sit at the table even at times of uh, strife that we're living in at the moment, to decide for the better good of humanity because the next pandemic, just like this one, will not respect borders. It will be global and it may not be as tractable to control as COVID-19 has been. The one thing that they don't talk about, which is really not in place, is setting up a global surveillance system, which again on Coronacast we've talked about a lot. It's really the principle of One Health. We're on one planet. We share that planet with animal species of all kinds. And these animal species are almost always where pandemics come from. In fact, so far in human history, it has been always where pandemics have come from. And we need to monitor wild animal and domestic animal populations. Um, means vets have got to be involved, agricultural departments and others that we monitor for unusual outbreaks. We do that for influenza. We don't do it comprehensively for other pandemic organisms or new organisms. Well, that actually kind of brings us back to what we were talking about last week with Professor Eddie Holmes about the potential that the coronavirus pandemic started in the seafood market in Wuhan. That was the original kind of theory that that was the origin of it with lots of different wildlife being kept together. And you can listen back to last week's episode. Professor Holmes gave a really great explanation as to the theory that around that and the evidence that's come out recently that underpins that theory. But Norman, we have had a couple of questions from people querying the logic there. Did you want to respond? Yes. I mean, uh, there are many people who believe firmly and with 
good intent that this was an escape from the lab. It's still possible it was an escape from the lab, but the evidence is slowly and steadily pointing elsewhere. And Eddie Holmes was careful to point out that we might not get any better evidence than this. But the core here is that, and people said, oh, I mean, one, one criticism that we got was, well, if there was a dead animal in the cart, for example, we, Eddie Holmes quoted a cart where he only found, I think, raccoon dog and maybe one or two other species DNA in it. They said, well, it could just have been butchered meat and you'd still find DNA, which is true. But Eddie Holmes' point is that there was no human DNA and that if you assumed that the virus was going to come from humans, you would have expected human DNA in those environments. And regardless of whether it was live or butchered animal meat, you actually weren't getting a strong representation of human DNA. So I don't think we'll ever know the answer to this question. It will always be controversial. And we've always said on Coronacast, it's always possible. It did come from the from the lab. It's still possible, but that possibility is less likely. That, and that's a very different question coming back to our original conversation in this Coronacast about the next pandemic. The next pandemic could indeed come from a lab and there are serious and sober researchers uh, around the world who in the year or two before coronavirus, this coronavirus emerged were concerned about bio-warfare, about you know, not needing a very expensive lab with this CRISPR technology which allows gene editing and the manipulation of organisms and that they are worried about the distinct possibility that the next pandemic could indeed be artificial and from a lab, not by accident, which is what it would have been if it came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but intentional. So we're not living in a particularly safe world for future pandemics. Well, yeah, sort of regardless of how this one started off, both of those things are still a real threat. The threat of a future pandemic coming from our encroaching on wildlife in in various natural environments, which we know is a real threat, and also the potential for intentional or unintentional escape from a lab. So vigilance is the key. But for people who are listening to this going, well, I am not a World Health Organisation staff member or a policymaker for a country, what should everyday people make of calls to action like this one in The Lancet when we're really talking about a very big global policy discussion? Well, I think I'm not suggesting campaigns, but individuals can ask their local member what their attitude is towards this and whether they're willing to represent it. I mean, Australia has a seat at the table. Australia is highly respected internationally at the public health table with a good track record, particularly in HIV AIDS. And we had a good track record with COVID-19 and asking what we are doing about it at a political level. This is politics. Politics can cause pandemics and politics can prevent them. Mm. And we're all humans with basically the same biology, so we're all equally as susceptible at the base level to these pandemics when they do arise. We're not as different as we'd like to make out. Well, on that very philosophical note, that's it for Coronacast for this week and for a couple of weeks. Yeah, we're having a wee break, a wee break over Easter. (laughs) So we'll see you back here in the same spot in your podcast feed in about mid-April. See you then. See you then.